Hello and welcome to the third edition of NHS Comms Cast, a podcast especially for all the brilliant comms and marketing professionals within the NHS. Christmas is on the way and our gift to you is a chat with the incredible Jude Tipper, the strategic comms leader at NHS Digital who has also worked in frontline NHS comms for 18 years. We talked about all kinds of things including how to deliver great campaigns and the importance of evaluation as well as the role that our personal values play in NHS comms. I've got to say Sue and I learned an incredible amount from our conversation with Jude and we really hope you do too. So welcome to the latest edition of our special NHS comms podcast. I'm joined as always by the lovely Sue Kong. Hello Sue. Hi Joe. And today we've got a very special guest, we've got Jude Tipper. I'm not going to even attempt your new role. What do you do now? So I am strategic comms lead for NHS Digital. And I say new, How, it's not that new, is it? Well, I still think it's new. I think you can still say new for a good year. Well, so I've been five months in, but I'm still saying I'm really new. But before that, I was in provider services for 18 and a half years. Oh, well, so yeah, 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 a little while. So yeah, bread and butter, NHS comms. So before we get into the bread and butter of today, why did you make the change? What, what prompted you to do something different? It was an amazing opportunity for secondment to come to national level. Mm-hmm. Huge change from frontline, I guess. So why wouldn't you take that opportunity? So amazing team, really lovely people, great boss, easy train ride for me. All, all the reasons that I'd be a fool to have turned it down, really. Yeah, why not? And how have you found it so far? Five months in. What are the differences? What are the kind of key elements between national and and more Uh, so obviously I've sat at frontline comms for a long time sort of seeing the stuff that comes down from the centre thinking why don't you give us more notice and why haven't you done this and why haven't you and now that I'm in a front in a national organisation I can see why you can't always give people more notice and why it's so hard to to do that I think obviously the biggest difference is a size of teams and responsibilities so I'm used to doing everything from the social media to the internal to the media to the stratcoms the whole lot and now I'm like oh there's there's a head of content and creative and there's an entire media team and there's somebody who just does social so that's great and it's also a bit weird for me I I think it must be quite difficult to even get your head around Allocating something to it a specific is. Yeah, it, it is very different, but it's also really nice. And to have that kind of like that peer support and mm. and like I say, they're a lovely, friendly, warm team. So to have that around you and be able to bounce ideas is is really good. Which makes it sound like I didn't have that in my old place. I did have an amazing team, but in comparison we were really small with a huge agenda. How do you manage that type? Because like you said, when you work in a in a con, I used to work in a kit trust, you have to be a jack of all trades, you have yep. to know how to do it all. How did you manage that in terms of like upskilling staff and making sure you still had the specialist expertise? Yeah, but I, I think you you kind of find the staff who have got a passion in a certain area who are particularly good at something. So you have yeah. staff who've got their job role and they've got that deep expertise in, in one area, but they can't, when you're in a small team, you can't just be an no. expert in one. Yeah, so true. you know that whole, um, have you heard the analogy of T-shaped people? So you have people who have deep expertise in one area and then broad expertise in everything else. So they they form a T. I I think in a small team, you can't be T's. You've got to be H's. Bear with me. So you need deep expertise in at least a couple of areas. You need that broad expertise, which is the bridge in the middle. And then you need to be growing up into expertise in other areas as well. I'm doing lots of hand gesticulations here. So... But yeah, so that so you've got that. that really good broad mix. Whereas I suppose in a national team, you can act, you know, completely hone your skills in an area that that you're familiar with, that you're passionate about. So you are the social media go-to person. Yeah. But then the danger of that 
is how do you move on and broaden your skills if yeah. that's the only bit that you do and again one thing I really like about NHS Digital is there's a huge amount of significance put on professional development for the team to make sure that people don't end up siloed in their area that they go out to front line that they shadow we're about to launch a shadow me program so encouraging people to come into NHS Digital and then we go back out so yeah, that's and that's great. that's for comms so keep an eye out for that on twitter yeah, so things like that i just think that's really good that they're doing that because they don't have to do that yeah. but it's a really good way of working so it's something i i admire and it feels very nice already i have to say yeah i love that so what are your big kind of differences between obviously nhs elect we're a national organization but how does that differ to when you were well, I was just reflecting what Judy was saying. I worked in strategic health authorities and then worked in acute trust. And I think some of the some of the softer skills you pick up on mm -hmm. this kind of national level are the political skills. Yes. With the big P as, as well as the little P. And, you, and I, I think the opportunity, especially in communications, it's more important to actually learn some of these soft uh, skills. So I think it's great this shadow program you're doing that you go show people some of the technical development they can yes. do, but also some of the kind of softer. Yeah. So when, like myself, doing NHS Elect, we were the organisation, when I first set it up, with some of my colleagues, was do a secondment programme. So for my membership, I encouraged comms and marketeers to come forward and kind of do a secondment, short, whether it's three months or a year with us, and they, they go back out. And there's something about helping people to go to the next stage of their career development. Mm. So what we found was as a national organisation, we can give that kind of strategic exposure of projects they would never have got if yes. they were working in one service or one trust uh, where they were. And it meant that we can create more directors of comms in the future because mm. they need that bit of political development and soft skills, negotiation, influencing skills to go up to that kind of level. So have you heard of shadow boards? No, we heard about so it's a bit no, of a movement and so a lot of trusts are setting up shadow boards so they have a group of people who sit underneath the board as a development program and our local area was the first area so the west yorkshire integrated care service set up a shadow board program but it was for the system leadership exec so it was a shadow system leadership executive group the acronym of which is SLEG and I kept saying <laughs> you can't keep calling it a SLEG guys because I would keep going SLEG and that's anyway um, so we were the shadow SLEG so I applied for this some other people in, in my trusted as well and my chief set very kindly put me forward so I was the sole comms person alongside HR people finance clinicians amazing and, and what we did was once, once a month we would look at the papers for the system leadership exec the day before they did we would go through their papers we would take it in turns to present them we would come up with recommendations so mm. i for example would be presenting papers on finance for a comms person that's tough isn't it you know we, yeah. we don't like numbers we like words and talking about huge amounts of money really difficult conversations about where do you put this money into a system that's strapped for cash so the, the skills that i learned on that program that sort of those softer skills of sort of strategic partnerships and relationships and the importance of relationships I think is probably the thing came out the loudest to me yeah. on yeah. that and my previous chief exec um, Rob Webster 
brilliant guy, great commentator if you follow him on Twitter. He's got a phrase which I like to fall back on quite often, which is that relationships move at the speed of trust. Mm, And it's so true. And I think in comms in particular, if you trust each other and you have good relationships, you move a lot quicker. And I've seen that go into a national organisation in a very different scale and way to a local organisation but the, the issues are exactly the same they're just on a different scale yeah. so I think I'd say to anyone scared of like working at a national level don't sweat okay. it it's exactly the same it's just a different scale and yeah. to national sort of comms people I'd say don't underestimate the skills of frontline communicators you know oh, we right. deal with that day in day out yes. just because we're not dealing with it on a national stage doesn't mean we don't have those no, skills quite. to yeah. cope with it yeah, I love that. Yeah. Shadowboards. Yeah, yeah. Nice. shadowboards, definitely. Um, have a look at them. There's a wonderful organisation called the Inspiring Leaders Network, and they work with a lot of NHS organisations to set these up. Yeah. And some really interesting work around things like youth shadowboards. and great. Yeah, it's great. It's really, really good stuff. Yeah, so it's, it's, yeah. It'd be great to see more... I'd love to see more directs of comms mm-hmm. in the NHS full mm-hmm. stop. Like, as we've Absolutely. seen recently, we've finally got a CEO who was previously yeah, in definitely, comms. Yeah. I mean, the more we can, can develop our leadership skills in comms in the NHS, the better, I think. So that sounds and, like and, great. And having that seat at the table. And I think yeah. probably sort of fellow people in the room might have thought, why is there a comms person here? But actually to show that you're more than just comms, you're like... Yeah. You, you bring a different sort of skill set to a room than an accountant or an HR person or, or a clinician. 100%. So, and by the end of it, they were saying things like, oh, the narrative's really important here, isn't it, Jude? <laughs> yeah, and I'd be like, yeah. yes, yes, I have trained you well. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Love it. So, before you left, you yeah. allowed organisations to come to NHS Digital. I understand you won an award. We did, yes. We won an HSJ Value Award. And they're really hard to win. You know, HSJ Awards, you you have to go and present to judges and yeah. provide all this evidence and stuff. So yeah, huge, huge success for our team. So it was the um, it was the comms initiative that we won. Brilliant. What was so, that then? What happened? So that was for our wellbeing campaign, which is called the All of Us campaign. So I've spoken quite a bit about this before, but it had three main aims, essentially. The first was to increase the take-up of our wellbeing services. So this is amongst staff. So we had like staff counselling, Oki Health, really good service offer, but it wasn't necessarily being used. So to increase that take-up. The other was to achieve the sequin, mm. which a lot of people listening will know what a sequin is. Yeah. Um, so it's, I can never remember the acronym. Is it Commissioning for Quality improvement something like all the ccd folk now are shaking their heads anyway it's it's a target that um a trust only gets money for it if they hit a target and we had some huge ones around well-being and it equated to about one hundred thirty-three thousand of lost income in that year and then an additional one for the flu jab as well so that's also always a sequin so there was a money element in this And then the third main aim for us that was really important was coordinating messages. So we had all these great staff in the organisation doing all this great stuff for wellbeing and all shouting at comms saying, this has to be on the homepage, this has to be in the newsletter. Essentially all doing the same thing and carrying the same message. So we decided to set up a campaign to kind of wrap that all around it. Collaboration and that was number one. So we go back to relationships. So we got all those people who were shouting at us to (laughs) spread messages into a room together. So we had Oki Health, HR, um, we had staff side reps, we had frontline clinicians, all in a room. And together we came up with the messaging, the aims of the campaign, how we were going to evaluate it. And we sat together and worked through a framework to develop 
those key messages. So that was really important stage in the campaign. I think it's probably why it was so successful. Love that. So Jude actually came and spoke about this at our conference back in 2018. Yes, yes. feels a long time ago that. And you can watch it if you'd like on the oh, NHS no, Select website. Yeah. And the reason you should watch it is because on that day we had the managing director of Twitter UK. We had a fantastic guy from IBM. I was even there, I presented in the afternoon. And Jude was the most popular presentation by a mile. She got 4.8 out of 5 on average, which is unheard of. Beat me, I got 4.7, I was gutted. No, I wasn't really. <laughs> but, you know, it was quite and a week. you didn't tell me until the day that you were pointing a camera in my face as well. Yeah. I was like, whoa, no pressure. Otherwise, you wouldn't have come along. So no, you, no, I wouldn't. But just to say, I'm sure Jude doesn't want lots more speaking gigs, but she was fantastic. And I really oh, would go and have you. a look on our website at that session because everybody it. loved it. Yeah. I think one of the things that went down really well then was the, um, the messaging framework that we That's used. Yeah. So loads of people are interested in and if you guys will have heard it, but I don't know if you'd heard of it before. The no, I so it's the twenty seven nine three messaging. So if anyone wants to Google it, you'll find loads about it. But it comes out of America, so don't hold it against it because <laughs> the Americans they know a thing or two about yeah. messaging and narrative oh, yes. and repetition and you know getting into psyche. And it was by the Centre for Risk Communication. So they analysed ten years of print and broadcast media in crises and emergencies. And they found that the average print quote is 27 words long. Mm -hmm. The average broadcast quote is nine seconds. And the average number of messages carried, no surprise to any communicator, is three. Hence the 2793. So it's this framework that you use to pull your messages together. And I've run a couple of sessions on it since, and everybody universally seems to love it. So if anybody wants to know more about it, I've got like a slide deck on it that I'm really happy to send out if anyone wants to get in touch. Yeah, oh, that's, that's it's really useful. Website, actually, yeah, we, great. I use that ever since actually. Have in you? Terms of explaining this particular, I find it useful for non-coms. So we yes. train a lot of non-coms people. And once they see that, they kind of get it. Yeah, I need to be quite structured. I need to be quite clear. I need to prioritise my my three key messages. Yeah, and the best bit for me is it makes people be succinct. Because yeah. oh, when you've yes. only got 27 words for three key messages, yes. and they yeah. want to say, can we just say? And you go, no, not if you lose something else. It's brilliant for for keeping people on track. Yeah, it's really good. Really yeah, no, good. Yeah. I, I need to kind of write that again in a marketing bulletin that we send out to our members. So yeah, because, because you get people who there's a churn in the NHS yes. and people didn't you know didn't go to Jews' session it would be yeah. great I'll, I'll definitely put that in yeah sure one. no it's yeah it's yeah. it's a good and it works so we want once I think the other beauty for a comms person is that once you've agreed these key messages with your key stakeholders whatever you want to call them you can then just crack on with the job. So it's up to you then. That's the skill of comms as you shape the materials using those messages. As long as you're not straying, you don't have to keep going back to people and asking for approval. Yeah. You just crack on. So long as you keep sticking to those key messages, crack on and get going yeah, with it. No, absolutely. And it provides such a great blueprint for anybody yeah. coming into the team or the project. <coughs> so it's so exactly right. That's our... That's our line. That's yeah. what we use. So we did a magazine for this campaign, which was really rare for us. We hadn't done a print product for years because of the cost. Yeah. But we did a 36-page magazine. We weaved all these messages through it, and we focused lots of stuff. And it was the most popular product of the entire campaign yeah. because I think people were so shocked to see a print product, something that they could pick up and touch and feel, and they took it home, that that was the most popular way for messaging. And the other most popular way for messaging was posters on the backs of toilet doors. <laughs> yes. So, you know, the oldies work for, yeah. and in this age of digital, we shouldn't ignore the really obvious yeah. 
that's exactly it. Sometimes yeah. we do go to these complicated, convoluted routes. And, and we had a doctor speak at one of our events last year, and she said, yeah, the best way for her to get messages is on the back of the toilet door, yeah. that's where she's most likely to see them. And we have seen a slight, I know that we, there's pressures to, to reduce the amount of wastage, but we have seen a move back to looking at print as mm. some effective ways to reach, particularly a lot of stuff don't have access to computers, no. or even mobile phones don't work in organisations, in hospitals. So minimising print, but, but using it to where we can. And I think we were really worried about the comeback from staff saying, at such a pressure time, we've got no money, why are you spending money on print? And we only got a couple of comments, but the, the louder voices were the ones saying, the fact you're spending money on this means it matters to the organisation. It means you care about us, so thank yeah. you. Yeah, so, and then, like yeah. I say, like we had a porter saying, oh, I took the magazine home and showed it to my son because he's drinking too much and he's smoking too much and I want to improve his well-being. So that, that was really oh, nice. Right. Yeah, it's great feedback, really good. So, and it had really long-lasting effects, that campaign as well. So it wasn't like a one you know, a one-burst wonder. It, it actually made an impact and a difference. Yeah. How did you know that the magazine was the thing? So we surveyed our staff oh. with a, a mm. quick and dirty survey monkey yeah. and it came back, so we did a brand awareness thing and we got something like 93% brand awareness of for this campaign and then we said, where did you hear or see about it and any comments and then we coupled the survey with sort of face-to-face, yeah. speaking to people and, and picking up feedback. You know, sometimes the richest feedback you get is that quick conversation yeah. in a corridor exactly. um, but people just university saying, we love the magazine, the magazine's great. So yeah, but... We came under a bit of pressure to do it the following year, but decided against it because then it wouldn't have felt as special as the year before. Mm. And 36 pages of well-being content, you can only go so far to tart it up in a different way and shove (laughs) it back out again, (laughs) which I think is what we would have been guilty of doing and it wouldn't have had the same impact. Because our staff aren't stupid, you know, they can tell. (laughs) I love that. I think there's another key message for me from that is we are quite scared to spend money, obviously, for obvious reasons, but mm-hmm. if we can spend money in the right areas that we know will work and we know will have the impact, why not? That and so much more and it was an easy decision, I think, for our execs because the, the correlation between staff wellbeing and sort of things like patient mortality rates mm. and patient engagement, you know, or satisfaction is huge. Yeah. So, and why wouldn't you want to look after your NHS staff? It's, it's, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Yeah. So. And we didn't put a lot of money in, you know, the total budget for that campaign was around 5k. That's not a lot of money. No, it's not. No. It's really not. But then you come to a national level and wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a different. Yeah, you want to talk about budget. I've, yeah, it's very, <laughs> that's a very different world. Yeah. Yeah, very different. And have you kept in touch with your colleagues now that you've left and see how that campaign has been taken forward? Yes, no, yeah, I'm, I'm, still in, I'm still in touch. I mean, I'm, I've only been out sort of five months, but when I went to do the HSJ, I got some new figures. So our, oh. our initial figures, you know, we, we hit the sequin, we saved the money, we saw a rise in things like occupational health attendance, physio attendance, staff counselling attendance, all of that went up. But I guess the longer term measures, I got our workforce analysis guys to do a bit of digging for me. And we had seen, in the duration of the campaign, we had seen a salary-based reduction of about £250,000 over the year. And we'd seen a reduction in lost calendar days, absence episodes and absence lengths, which, again, at a time when frontline services are so pressured. And they're small amounts, so it's like 3% reduction over the year. But actually, 3% of a a 4,500 workforce, that's quite a significant amount. So to see the difference it's made, and it's kind of part of the fabric of the organisation now, the campaign. So yeah, I remain really proud of that. It's a good. And for it's me, a good that's one. such a 
inspirational message for just comms in general because I think sometimes when I think back to myself you get bogged down in doing things you've got to do responding to media requests running the AGM writing the bloody annual <laughs> report <laughs> takes God how long and all stuff that you can't really see making mm. like, that is real yes. impactful meaningful yeah. stuff for staff and, and in turn patients and, and I think again that's it. we're quite guilty in frontline we I'm not frontline anymore but I still feel like yeah. my heart's there yeah. of, of not evaluating and often that's because we don't know where to start yeah. and quite frankly it's because we don't have time because yeah. you're moving from one thing to the next thing to 100%. the next thing so to actually plan out a campaign where we thought from the outset how are we going to measure this and how are we going to collect that and it's never normally comms who's doing the collecting of that data mm. yes. so it goes back to relationships you've got to have those relationships with the other key parts of your organisation who will collect that data and bring it back for you yeah. I don't mean... I mean the beauty of what Julie's saying, it's just wonderful, the fact that it carried on, even though she's not there in the trance. Yes. We've seen so many great campaigns and projects. They kick off because of the passion and the energy of mm. one individual, but as soon as they leave the trust, it then all stops. Yeah. And, and hearing that, yeah, which, is, it's which is building your coalitions of supporters and embed it into the fabric of the organisation, and more important, the staff. They want it, they value it, and they want to carry on. That's the and, and, it kind, and it kind of ties to the next big bits of work. So things yeah. like um, at the Trust Now, when you have an appraisal, you have to have a conversation about your well-being, mm, and it's badged nice. with our campaign yeah. logo. But that then links to the employee value proposition and why would you go and work for that particular organisation. They're known for being an organisation who values staff well-being. So it all kind of links yeah. together. Yeah. And yeah. I left behind me an amazing team of very clever, clever people who are just carrying on the work that I started. Great. Yeah, it's good. In terms of getting the agenda for doing something like that, where did that originate? Was that something that's... You it, it kind of originated, I suppose, as a collaboration between ourselves and HR. So HR knew that we had to do all this stuff and it was just moving up the agenda of importance. We were probably getting a bit bogged down in the requests for work around wellbeing um, and we had to find a way through it. And, and then, of course, this great big thing with the money came in and suddenly we were told we've got to do this because we've got a sequel, we've got a target to hit, yeah. and then suddenly that moves up the agenda. Now that's not to say we didn't have to drop other work to work on this, so there were other requests coming through that we had to deprioritise. Yeah. That's really hard, but because the board and the exec team had said this has got to be a real focus for the comms team, we knew we had that backing and that air cover. So when people did invariably you know, move on up the chain and complain about comms, we actually had that cover at the top level to say no they're doing this and this is this is really important and where we want them to focus their efforts such a key bit of advice i think getting that like you say air cover from yeah. the top to because otherwise you can easily if you if you work at any trust you can easily get bogged down with all the myriad requests that you get yeah. in from different people yeah. just to say actually do you know what we're going to serve a really strategic purpose here we're going to deliver something really cool for the organization and your request for a poster is going to have to, you're going to, have yeah. to wait or you're going to have to do it yourself. And so mapping everything back to the priorities of the organisation, so our sort of priorities flow naturally out of the organisation's priorities, mm. and that's where we had to focus our efforts, because we were too small to do it all, and we yeah. knew that, yeah. but we did a lot, and I think we, we were quite good at being able to see the quick wins, you know, yeah. the things that you can do quite quickly to satisfy, and then the things where you really have to put your time and effort and energy into. <laughs> So now you're at NHS Digital, mm -hmm. obviously a very different, <coughs> everything about it is different, I imagine, 
from a comms point of view. What are some of the things you have brought here, though, in terms of things you've done? So I was really lucky. Well, I, th- I think it's luck. So probably within about six weeks of being there, it's not the reason I went in, but a really amazing project landed with me, which was marketing the NHS app. Mm. I'm hoping you've heard of the NHS app. So the NHS app originally had an eye-watering marketing budget. I think it's eye-watering because I've come from provider sector. (laughs) Um, National colleagues were probably saying, well, that's fine, that was normal. And of course that went through rounds of spending reviews and it got whittled down, it got whittled down and it ended up being zero pretty much. Um, And yet the, the aspiration for the app and the number of targets for downloads and registrations by next April remained the same. It was then asked of NHS Digital if we'd sort of lead a key part of this and we were really keen to take that on. My director, associate director, Mark Silverside, has a history in charity sector. Mm-hmm. So he was the director of comms for Macmillan. So coupled with his sort of charity head on and my sort of provider head on, we both kind of agreed that actually it didn't need that size budget. And there's so much you can do with, once again, it's about relationships. Yeah. And if you can work the relationships properly, you can do something at zero, low cost. Yeah. So I completely took that learning, and Mark said, oh, I'm looking for somebody to lead this bit of work, working in collaboration with our comms colleagues at X and NHS England. And um, my name got put forward because I was used to doing something with nothing. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah but what a, great, you know, what a great project to go in and start working yeah, on. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, really good. I don't know what I'd do now if I went to like a big corporate organisation where they spend millions on things. I just don't think I could operate. No, it's, um, yeah, it's, it, it's a weird world where that was an acceptable figure. And I can see why, because the ROI yeah, on the I'm app saying. is huge. Yes. But actually, when you look at the other things that Treasury need to fund at the moment, yes. maybe a marketing campaign on, on an app isn't the right thing. But it did mean we had to get creative, which is, I hope to think, one of my strengths. So, yeah. And we, I very much turned to the NHS comms community to help from the outset, because we decided the best place to start was with staff. Because yeah. if you want somebody to advocate for a product, Absolutely. who better than NHS yeah. staff? Coupled with the fact that patients are likely to ask NHS staff about the app. Mm-hmm. So we rolled out a toolkit only a few weeks ago, actually, mid-October, we started it into the NHS. And I've been cajoling and begging NHS comms colleagues ever since to use it. But it's going down really well. And I think the key thing was I worked with about 150 frontline staff I set up a separate Facebook group so an offshoot of the great NHS comms org that Anthony Turner set up the reason I set it up as a separate group was I didn't want to drive people nuts on the main group saying (laughs) can I ask you this can I ask you that but to have those guys as a sounding board and say here's what we're thinking of putting in toolkit does that look about right are we missing anything here's the logo what do you think here's Mm. the creative what do you think and have that opportunity to to speak to my my people if you like you know my frontline nhs comms community and get their input on it i think has made all the difference yeah i love that so what great great example of co-creation yeah you know we we talk about co-creation in the clinical services quite a lot and to see the same technique pdsa co-creation also happening in comms it's great to see Mm. because it just raises the professional bar it and i think also it comes from Like I said earlier, I'd been that person at the front line Mm. and national materials hit and you're told you have to use this tomorrow or, you know, sorry for the short notice, but this needs to go out. And you just think, well, I can't program that in. And then, you know, over the 18 years, I've seen some great toolkits. I've seen some appalling toolkits come out. And I was determined that if we were going to do a toolkit, it was going to be 
everything that comes person needed, good pick and mix, it was going to be really easy to use. Mm. So I hope we've kind of set a bit of a blueprint for yeah. national internal comms toolkits. And as part of the evaluation work we're going to do, we're going to try and do an evaluation framework and try and sort of prove that this was the right way to do yeah. it and it did give comms people what they needed. Mm. So what was in it? What's your top toolkit tips? Easy for me to say. What top, were they? Top toolkit... <laughs> I can't even say it either. Um, I think probably just remember that not every trust is the same. So not everybody's got digital display screens, for example. Yeah. But for those who do, they really want an animation and they don't want it with sound. Everybody wants ready-made social media images. So we did all the sizing. So we did, you know, the Facebook sizes, the Twitter, the LinkedIn. We did that for teams so they didn't have to yeah. do it. Things like copy length. Again, every trust has a different sort of newsletter, yeah. homepage of the internet. So we provide a copy at 25 words, 50 words, 100 words, 200 words. So people could pick and choose what yeah. they needed. So I think my top tips would be just make it as easy as possible for that busy frontline comms professional. How can you make their life as easy as, as possible to carry your message? Because at the end of the day, you're doing, they're doing you a favour. So yeah. to get people to do you a favour and then make it really hard for them. Yeah, that's, exactly. And I'd like to think as well it's all about sort of common goal as well and people sort of joining together for this. And I'll be nagging people again in another couple of months when we flip to the public-facing Yeah, so when's messaging. that all going to yeah. Well, it, it, at the moment we're looking like New Year, but obviously we are living in a strange world at the moment, aren't we? And yes, um, that's, that's right. who knows what could happen in the next couple of months. So um, yeah. our plan is to get things ready. We've got an amazing group of frontline staff who are our app ambassadors. So we've got about 650 of those in all types of clinical professions. So the momentum is growing with them. They're helping us communicate to their colleagues. And then we're looking forward to flipping that into the public domain when the time is right. So what else has been taking up your time? A day in the life of June? Yeah, well, recently I've joined the CIPR Health Committee, which is another great opportunity. So I've joined that as vice chair. It's made up of people not just from NHS comms, but also from sort of pharmaceutical and, and other parts of, you know, any kind of health PR. And as part of that, there's a subgroup working on mental health, which is something, because I've worked in mental health services for 18 odd years, mental health is something I'm really passionate about. I think that the strides we've made in society about talking about it are phenomenal. And I think back to in the early 2000s when I was doing anti-stigma campaigns and it was really taboo to talk about mental health. And where we are now is amazing, but there's still so much to be done, particularly in our own profession. So the CIPR did a state of profession survey last year, and there were a quarter of people who responded to that said that they're taking, they have taken sickness on the grounds of stress, anxiety, mm. depression. So that's our peers, that's our fellow yeah. communicators. Mm. And um, Helen Reynolds, who I'm sure a lot of you follow on Twitter, she recently did a stress survey and 63% of us say that we work with unrealistic deadlines and half of us can't switch off when we get home and are always ranting to loved ones. Now, I, you know, that you're all yes. nodding, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you do, you can't switch yeah. off, you're ranting. Now, part of that's the nature of our work and it's always on and social media in particular. I think we are there and we're meant to monitor it. It can really take its toll if you're monitoring social media and people are battering you. I think that's probably an even bigger issue for local government people. Yeah. Huge. And I sort of think, I don't know how people don't think there's a person at the end of that, you know, yes. taking all that crap and abuse. So the CIPR, we're really keen on doing some work around the mental health and how we look after mental health of each other. They've done a brilliant skills guide and a webinar already. 
but we've got some great work coming up in the next year around that so if anybody wants to get involved in that just give yeah. us a shout and keep an eye on what's what's coming up that's really good work so that's taking quite a bit of my time at the moment yeah it would do how do people get involved in CIPR what's the so you need to be a member which obviously is a financial outlay but I think it's quite an important thing to invest in yourself invest in your own career and then once you're a member you can get involved in any of the regional groups the subgroups um, but obviously if you're not a member just keep up on Twitter you can still access yeah. some of the materials but there's an amazing array of professional development materials behind the wall once you are a member so it's worth considering if people haven't already and what about values we will talk about values quite a lot I mean the NHS is a value driven organisation mm. and it becomes a, a very strong anchor for us when we go through bad times and difficult times as a communicator, can you tell me a bit more about your values and how that has helped you? Yeah, I think I've always been conscious that you have a strong value base when you work in the public sector. I think there's a reason we all choose to do what we do, as opposed to selling lipsticks or products or whatever it might be. And obviously the values of the NHS are inherent in everything we do. You have the values of your organisation, which they all think are wildly different from each other because they like to differentiate, (laughs) but I would hazard a guess they're all pretty much the same. So I've always known that values matter to me and I've always had that sort of strong sense of purpose, if you like. It's really difficult to talk about this without sounding like Miss World, (laughs) so forgive me with that and just go with it. But I think last year I had some coaching, some executive coaching, which was absolutely brilliant. And um, my coach was saying, you talk a lot about your values. And when you talk about situations that challenge you, Mm. you keep talking about your values. And, And she said, so can you tell me what your values are? I sort of stared out the window and my brain was going, oh my God, I can't. And I ended up saying this really cringy thing and saying, no, I can't tell you what they are, but I feel them. And <laughs> isn't that awful, yeah, isn't like it? it? But actually, it's so true, yeah, you yeah. do feel them. So I kind of set myself a bit of homework to work out what my personal values were. There's different schools of thought about whether you can separate your personal and professional values. Mm-hmm. I personally don't think you can. I think you have to bring your whole self to work. You have yeah. to, to work you know, in that way. So I went through countless lists and ways of trying to define what my values were. And I think one of the things that really helped me was to think about situations when my values were challenged. And why did I react in that Mm. way? What was it that made me so cross or so hurt or so angry Mm. or so upset? And it's because my values were being compromised. So from that, I was able to sort of whittle down what I think my personal values are. And now that I think I know what they are, it gives me this framework to understand how I react in situations. So, you know, our jobs can be quite confrontational at times, back to relationships, isn't it? So when they break down or we're under pressure, and I will fall back always and thinking, hang on a minute, how am I behaving? And is this true to who I want to be and who I want people to know me as? And is that person behaving in a way that I think is true to my values? And if not, have I got the guts to challenge? back on that Mm. and I think now I know what those values are I feel braver in challenging myself and in challenging others Mm. so if it's something you haven't done I'd suggest you do do a bit of soul searching navel gazing whatever you want to call it Um, but knowing who you are and what makes you tick I think is a really important part of being a self-aware communicator a colleague a leader a parent a friend all those things I think it makes you a a better all-round person God, I really do sound like Miss World, don't But I mean, I follow your tweets, and most recently, I think one of your values that come out is empathy. Yes. 
very strong yeah. on empathy and compassion, which is, thank goodness, for healthcare, yes. you're in the right sector yeah, for that. But, yeah, but I think empathy is a really strong... Uh, there's a difference, I suppose, between having a skill and having a value as well. That's right. So a lot of people have an empathetic skill. It doesn't necessarily mean they have empathy. Yeah. And that whole concept of, oh, walk a mile in my shoes. And I think that the, the mistake people make is that they put themselves in that person's shoes as opposed to thinking... How does that person feel yeah. in their shoes? So that person with their different backgrounds and experiences and prejudice and any of that, how are they feeling in their shoes? Yeah. As opposed to you just thinking, well, if I was them. Mm. And, and uh, do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I yeah. So, yeah, so empathy and I think in difficult conversations, again, I struggle if I think the person I'm talking to doesn't have empathy. And I will try and tease that out and challenge it and say, yeah, but look at it from this point of view and consider it from this point of view. Yeah. And I think because I know that now and I know that's something that matters to me, I find it easier now to have those conversations and I'm a bit braver in those conversations. My, one of my other core values I settled on was kindness, which I think people a lot of the time think you're quite weak if mm. you profess to be kind. But actually it takes incredible strength to be kind, particularly when you're being challenged. Yeah. So to always you know go back and think is this the kind is this the right thing to do is this a kind thing to do am i doing it in a kind way and again with communicating do we communicate kindness often enough do we communicate in a kind way and i think my background in provider services has given me great grounding in that because you know working in mental health and learning disabilities the staff who do those jobs are absolutely phenomenal they are the most compassionate kind people and i have the hugest admiration for them and to sort of take what I've seen in those services and learn from it, it's just been a privilege. Wow, absolutely spot on. NHS Alert, we've got our wards coming up um, and we are amazed at the amount of mental health entries we've had. Mm -hmm. And it is exactly your point. And, and Joe and I, we not only we do comms and marketing, we also do patient experience customer care training mm -hmm. for our members. And I think this communications and marketing background where you always kind of look external, it's not about you, it's about them really helps with your orientation when you look at an issue. Yeah. To give people the benefit of the doubt. What was that 10 seconds in your life to give someone the benefit of the doubt rather than jumping in straight away and judging someone? Yes. Uh, and yeah. quite often from a negative perspective Absolutely. rather than positive. Yeah. So I think all this just helps. I completely agree with your kind of values that yeah, helps and I th you. Really. I think, you know, we live in an unkind world, actually. Whichever, you know, side of the political fence you land, these are not kind times and actually what we can do amongst ourselves is to be kind to each other which goes back to the the CIPR and the stress and the mental health and all of we've got to be kind to ourselves and kind to each other to be able to then do our jobs well I, I think anyway and to avoid that burnout because there's too many of us burning out yeah yeah couldn't agree more so that's the end of our conversation with Jude I think what really struck me the most listening back was just how important NHS comms people can be and that we really can make a fundamental contribution to both staff well-being and patient care. As we get deep into the winter months with all the pressures that come with them, I really hope you can keep hold of that thought because you really do make a difference. That just leaves me to wish you all a fantastic Christmas and a very happy start to 2020. We look forward to talking to you again in the new year.